without doubt, you are the magnificent one, awesome and absolute in power. And we've sung that song and we've heard what Jenny, uh, what uh, uh, Lillian was saying earlier, Lord, about how you can be honoured in all of life. And I pray now for a real sight of your power, of your magnificence, as we look at your word, as we hear from you. So as we see the extent of your beauty, we might respond more and more with our lives offered, living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you, as we seek to honour you. Open us up now, I pray, Lord, in our minds to understand, in our hearts to want to do it, to see you more fully and to live with you more fully. We pray it now in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Please do take a seat. Thank you very much to Johnny uh, and to Lillian and to Chris as well. And my warm welcome to you this morning. If you've got that passage from Malachi on your phone or in a Bible, that would be really uh, fantastic. It's uh, the second half of chapter one in Malachi and it's on page 960 in the church's Bible. It would be great if you had it there in front of you. And the big theme is this idea of honour, of honour, of honouring God in all of life. Um, do you remember your first day at school? Anyone remember their first day at school? Some of you do. Uh, I remember my first day at school really clearly. Uh, I was uh, a second son, so my brother had gone to the secondary school before me, and he filled me with loads of terrifying stories of what first year at high school was going to be like. Did you have a sibling that did that? So it was bad enough anyway, I was moving from a school, small primary school of only 100 odd kids in the whole school to this whopping great 2,000 pupils central school in the county uh, from a five minute walk with my mum, a uh, 40 minute bus ride to get to high school and from being a bit of a big fish in a small pond at primary school to just a tiny little tadpole being circled by these great white sharks uh, when I got into high school. I remember it really clearly. And the particular stories my brother used to tell me to really fill me with fear were it's about K.D. Smith. Now that name just makes me feel nervous right now. K.D. Smith, he was the headmaster of the secondary school and he was old school. He'd been there 30 years and he was the head almost through my seven years at high school. He retired just before I finished. They weren't linked to my attendance at the time. He just, he just got to that age. And he was an old school head teacher. He wore a billowing black cape and a mortarboard when he walked through the school. And I remember my first day at school, there I was, this tiny tadpole with the other little tadpoles in the corner, terrified, no idea what was going on, in the main corridor of this old Victorian school building. And suddenly the hubbub and noise went totally quiet. Even the big six formers who seemed like giants to me stood at the side of the corridor. Even some of the younger teachers stopped their chatting and stood to the side smart. And K.D. Smith came striding down the main corridor, his, his cape billowing behind him, his mortarboard set there, me practically needing a change of shorts, I'm not joking. <laughs> and his cape whispered over my face as it billowed past. I actually feel a bit sick in my stomach <laughs> But I learned to honour K.D. Smith. Partly because I was terrified at his power. He was the almighty within that school. But also 
because I came to be absolutely confident in his goodness. Can you name someone in your life or in your past who filled those two categories? You recognised they had incredible power and authority. And yet, you knew they were absolutely good and had your best interests at heart. That was K.B. Smith. I honoured him. It was easy to honour him. Well, our passage, the second half of Malachi, is all about honour. See there in sentence six. A son honours his father and a slave his master. If I'm a father, where is the honour due to me? If I'm a master, where is the respect due to me? And then it closes in sentence 14, the, the last clause of the section we're looking at, where God says, my name is to be feared. In fact, it's the same word as used to say honoured in verse 6. My name is to be honoured among the nations. So this passage is bookended with this idea of God deserves to be honoured. Let me remind you of the context of what's going on. This is about two and a half thousand years ago, about 500 years before Jesus lived. And Malachi, his name means the messenger, is a preacher. And these are transcripts of his sermons. And he's talking to Israel at a point in their history where they have been in exile. For 70 years there was an enslaved nation to Babylon. But they've come out of exile and they're building themselves back into an independent, self-governing nation-state, led by two men called Ezra and Nehemiah. And there have been about 100 years of re-establishing themselves as their own nation. But things for them are incredibly difficult. Things are still bleak. They're a little backwater nation, 150,000 people maximum in them. That's the size of a medium-sized town in the UK at the moment, isn't it? Pushed and pulled on the checkerboard of global politics, uh, unable really to determine their own future. And they're convinced their situation is because of a deficiency in God's love. Look back at sentence two, if you can. God says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But they ask, how have you loved us? They say, actually, God, our situation, our circumstances are because you're not really loving us fully. What we saw last week in that, that opening paragraph was that Malachi actually says to them, no, you've got it so desperately wrong. God, in fact, is the only one who has loved you and never stopped loving you. In fact, God is the only one who's loved you even when you deserved, and then Malachi uses this very emotional word, even when you deserve to be hated. God loved you. And so sentence five ends with Malachi saying there's going to come a day when you will say great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel that God's love is going to stretch beyond just your little nation state and your 150,000 people in Jesus Christ it's going to stretch into every nook and cranny of the world that God's love is abundant and vast and expansive and open and undeserved and is available and accessible to all people everywhere you can smile at that that's good news, isn't it? And so in Jesus Christ, and this is really important, if you're not yet a Christian, if you know someone who's not yet a Christian, which is all of us, if you're trying courageously, like Lillian, to represent Jesus in your family or in your workplace, 
God's love is for anyone, whatever country they are from, it's for any language or accent that you happen to speak with, whatever social grouping, whether you feel that you're actually the aspiring middle class or whether actually you're proud to be working class and the backbone of Britain, Christ's love is for everyone, isn't it? It's for the happy and the sad, it's for the last and the least and the lost, it's for the self-made man and for the down in the dumps, it's for the clown, fortunately, and for the cool one. It's for everyone, isn't it? It's for the up and rising, and it's for the over the hill. It's for absolutely everyone. And so Malachi says to them here in Israel at this time, he says, friends, there is no deficiency in God's love for you. No deficiency in God's love for you. There is, however, a deficiency in you honouring God. That's where the problem lies. And friends, do you see the order of how this goes? It begins with God's love, doesn't it? Uh, Verses 1 to 5, the first thing God says, I have loved you, he says. But then, he says, now respond by honouring me. You see the flow? He loves us first. He initiates. He reaches out to us. But then there is a response of us honouring him. Now, it's really important we get this right. Christianity is not religion. Did you know that? I'm sure you did. It's important to tell our friends this, isn't it? Christianity is not religion. Religion starts the other way. Religion starts with us trying to honour God. That's what religion says. If you can somehow honour God, if you can somehow do something that pleases God, then he might respond and love you. That's what religion says. That's what the world says quite often, isn't it? You'll be accepted if you can give something, if you've given up in your workplace, given up in your sports team, given up in the exams that you sit at school. If you can honour someone enough, they might love you. They might accept you. That's religion. Christianity says no. God has loved me. He initiates. He makes the first move. He walks across the dance floor and asks you for that sweet 16 dance. He initiates. He loves, and we respond to that love. The order is so important, isn't it? If we ever outgrow that, then we have left true Christianity. That's why it starts, verse 2, I have loved you, and then only in verse 6 says, why are you not honouring me? In this passage, there's actually three ways that God is to be honoured. Look at verse 6 again. First of all, God says, I am a father. So God is described as deserving honour because he's a loving father and to be his child is a delight. Verse 6 again says, I'm a master and so I deserve honour. God is a good master and to be his servant is deeply satisfying and so he needs to be honoured. And then verse 14, right at the end there, God says, I am a great king. Did you see that? A great king. Not a cruel or wicked king, but a great king. And therefore it's a joy to be his citizen and to honour him back. Now, I don't know if you've got any friends who have ever asked you the question, well, what does it mean if you're a Christian? If they've ever asked you that. But if they do, they're probably meaning what kind of things do you do as a Christian? But a much better way to answer it is by using this imagery of who God is and who we are, isn't it? What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to be a delighted child of a loving father. Doesn't it? 
What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to be a deeply satisfied servant, obedient to a good master. That's what it means. If we go to church regularly, we saying my prayers, or reading my Bible, or, or trying to do evangelism in the workplace, those are offshoots. It means I'm a child who is loved. It means I'm a servant who is satisfied. And it means I'm a citizen of a wonderful king who provides and protects for me. It's a good way to answer the question, isn't it? I have a father, I have a master, and I have a king. But look at sentence, let me read again, sentence six to eight, because look how they do respond to this loving father and this good master. Let me pick it up halfway through verse 6. It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's temple is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? So can you picture the temple as it was two and a half thousand years ago? A bit mediocre, because they hadn't really rebuilt it quite fully. And as they come to honour God, as they were required at that age, you watch a lamb come down the middle where you're sitting. And you think, is that thing going to snuff it before it even reaches the altar? kind of staggering along, it's got patches of fur missing, it can't see where it's going, it bumps into a chair. Well, that's what they're doing. They're honouring God in such a way that suggests he does not deserve honour. They're going through the routine of honouring God, but doing it in such a way that anybody looking would say the God they are honouring is very dishonourable. He can't be a loving father. Because what child would bring a loving father something as measly as that? He must be a cruel and wicked father. And how sorry I feel for them to be his child. Well, they look and they say, well, he can't be a good master. He must be a bit of a dictator master. What servant would bring a good master such a measly offering? I would not want to be a servant of that master. And what kind of king do they suggest? God is, a dark dictator who is forcing them to bring something and so they see what they can get away with as best they can. Not a great king, not a good king, not a king that we might change our citizenship and apply for his nationality. No, I'll stay where I am. I wouldn't want to be led by that kind of king. Honouring God in such a way that actually suggests he is not honourable, not worthy of honour. Let me give you a brain break and illustrate it like this. This ability we have, and we can do it very well, to honour someone without really honouring them. Teenagers actually are particularly good at this, don't they? Do you mind cutting the grass? Yes, I'll cut the grass. Big eye roll, big hump. What are they saying? I'll go through the routine, I'll go through the ritual of honouring you as my parent, but actually all the signals I'm sending are, I don't really think you're that great. How about this for an illustration? Imagine for a moment I invited you round to a meal at our house. Now, first of all, you'd check whether the boys would be in bed or not, wouldn't you, before you'd accept. But let's say they were, it was an evening meal. And Randy came on Friday nights. You were looking forward to a really nice evening. You'd make sure you just tidied yourself up a little bit after your day at work. You had a nice bottle of wine and a bunch of flowers, and you turned up on our doorstep, and I let you in. You were a little bit surprised to see that I was still wearing the clothes that I'd been doing the gardening. It was a little bit whiffy and hadn't really changed into something with less grass stains on, but you thought, well, you know, maybe they do it different in this household. 
And in you come, and you sit down at the table, which is sort of late, but not especially, and I step out of the kitchen. You figure I've gone to do something. Maybe you'd arrived a bit early, you thought, and I've gone to get changed. Well, what I don't really hear after 10 minutes or so, you go to search me out. And there I am in our lounge, with my feet up on the table, drinking a glass of the wine that you bought, not offered any to you, <laughs> watching the TV. Hmm. <laughs> Players had that experience. No, <laughs> don't quite know what's going on here, but before you can say anything, your stomach rumbles. Even I have to pay attention. I roll my eyes, I get up, I go back into the kitchen, you follow me in and sit down. Now you can start to smell some pretty tasty stuff coming out of the oven at this moment. So you think maybe the evening's going to turn, it's going to end well, even if it started badly. I serve a plate of the finest cuisine, clearly not cooked by me, but by Hannah. There it is. <laughs> But it doesn't appear anywhere near your sitting. I walk straight past you back into the lounge and begin tucking in. <laughs> well, now you think this is really strange, don't you? You're starting to get a little bit stroppy. You're not quite sure what to do. So you do the polite middle class English thing. Oh, that looks tasty, is what you say. Whereas really what you're thinking is, where's mine? That's what we do as Brits, isn't it? That looks very tasty, doesn't it? And I say, oh, you're hungry. Yes, you say. So I get up and go back in the kitchen. Now your hopes are lifting at this point because you are very peckish. Well, I don't go to the oven, I go to the corner where the dog's bowl is, and I pick up the dog's bowl. Now, the, the ham is really crunched through most of his meal, but there's a bit of slobbered, covered, covered grizzle in the corner. Even the ham's jaws have crunched through it. I scoop it up onto a plate, and I slide that in front of you before turning around and walking back into the land. Now, what would you assume? Not that I was honouring you, would you? Not at all. Going through the actions, inviting you to dinner, having you in my house, even giving you something to eat, but everything about the way I do it says I don't actually honour you. That's what they're doing. Now, of course, I think the question you might have, it's a good question, it's a question I, I might have, you say, well, that's all very interesting, Alex, but what has the half-hearted sacrificing of second-rate animals by priests who are not bothered in a mediocre temple two and a half thousand years ago, what has that got to do with us today? What has that got to do with Lillian being a teacher and a parent and a spouse? What has it got to do with my life, Alex? Interesting. Well, of course, we don't bring sheep, lambs, cattle and cows into church on a Sunday. The more I've thought about it, the more I've thought maybe we should. And sometimes with the children, it feels like it, doesn't it? A bit of a barn, right? But you don't bring your cows or your Labrador or whatever it might be into church. Up comes Fifi or whatever, and I slit her throat. We don't do that, do we? Probably wouldn't go down very well for the RSPCA, certainly. We don't. Someone say yes, we don't. No, we don't. The reason we don't, obviously, is because all of this Old Testament history of sacrifices, of lambs being slaughtered, was God's way of showing how pointless an exercise us trying to honour God is until first God has loved us. You see, that Jesus is the perfect and permanent sacrifice that fully appeases God's anger and fully buys our freedom and forgiveness. But we have to learn the lesson that even if they bought really healthy and plush and blow-dried lambs, that that was never going to be sufficient. It always had to be Jesus. So that system has been done away with, hasn't it? But the language of sacrifice is still applied to those who believe in God in the New Testament. But no longer about us bringing our animals, domestic or otherwise, to be sacrificed, but us bringing ourselves as a living sacrifice. 
So Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, one of my favourite verses in the Bible, says, Therefore, my dearest brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, remember it starts with God's love, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your reasonable act of worship. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies. It's actually the word literally in our physical bodies. But why he uses that word is, can you go anywhere without your body? Is it possible to do anything in life without your body? Well, it's not, is it? So it's a way of saying your entire life, everything you do, everything that can carry you 24-7. No longer is worship and sacrifice limited to an animal in a temple done by a priest. But now the whole of our life is the cathedral of praise to be a living sacrifice. So now the question is, what kind of father do we suggest God is by the priorities in our life? What kind of king or master do those who watch us conclude God is by the way we live for him or not. Actually, does God get the equivalent of the blind and the crippled and the diseased sacrifice? And how can we tell? Because if you notice here, God says you're dishonouring me, and they say twice, how? Did you see that? They ask it. They're blind to what they are doing. How are we defiling you? How are we offering what is contemptible? So how do we know? Now I think Jesus helps us out here enormously. In Matthew 6.21, Jesus says, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus says, whatever your treasure is, whatever your, you most value, wherever that is located, that is like a radar to your hidden heart, isn't it? And I suspect what most of us value, what is our biggest treasures in life, is our money and our time, our cash and our calendar. So I think Jesus is saying, actually, follow the direction of your money. Follow the direction of your time and you'll see what you most honour and what you most value. Now what Malachi does is to now give us two particular examples. So I want you now thinking in this context of living sacrifices, thinking about what kind of God we show God is in how we live. And Malachi gives us two particular ways we honour God in such a way that suggests he doesn't deserve honour. The first in sentence 8 to 11 is about our outward actions. That we give to God what we wouldn't dare give a minor local official. Let me read it again. If you've got it there, you can see it there as well. Sentence 8 through to 11. Or sentence 9, let's pick it up. Now plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands will he accept to you, says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so you would not light useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I'll accept no offerings from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, 
because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord. And look halfway through sentence 8, where it says, When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor, would he be pleased with them? See, they're bringing animals to the temple in their day, which if they brought to their local government official, their local MP, which you have to do to get access to put your case for something, the local MP would look and say, that's not an offering. You're not welcome to come and talk to me with something as measly as that. And they would shut the door on you. And God here is saying, you bring to God what you would not even bring to a minor local official. You offer to God the kind of leftovers, the worn out, the tattered, that you would not even attempt to give to someone else. Do you have that Christmas present? Do you know the Christmas present that some of us have to avoid that awkward social faux pas? You see one or two of you already know what I'm talking about. It's the generic spare Christmas present. Any gender, pretty much any age. Normally a food stuff, biscuits or chocolate. Do you know what I'm talking about? Gets wrapped up nicely, no name goes on it, and it's tucked behind the Christmas tree. And it's there for that awkward moment when someone turns up around the Christmas period who you didn't expect would get you a present, but they have a present in their hand. And then you go, oh, lovely, I've got yours here actually. Around the back of the Christmas tree, out comes the generic present. Do some of you do that? Shall I ask for a show of hands? No, I won't ask for a show of hands, right? Now, I'm not critical of that. I think it's a very clever way to avoid a middle-class social faux pas. It's a clever thing to do. But what does that present say about the person who gets it? It says they're not that important in your life because you've never even thought to buy them a present, did you? Imagine if you took that spare generic present and on Christmas Day, as the family is getting all their presents, and suddenly it dawns on you that you haven't got your wife, which would be my context, you haven't got your wife a present. And you say, don't worry, it's okay, I've got one just round here. Now what would they say? What would they say? Would they be pleased with that? No! They'd slam the door, not in your face, but on your back, probably, wouldn't they? And yet here he's saying, you bring to God what you would not even bring to your governor. Would he be pleased with it? Now think, perhaps, about those radar markers of where your heart is, of how you honour God, of your money and your time. Does God get the kind of portion of your time that if you offered it to your loved one, they would look at you and say, what? The dregs? The exhausted moments? A couple of minutes a day? What would your wife say? If you offered to her, or your husband say, or your best friend, or your child say, if you offered to them the time you offered to God, would they be pleased with it? It's a great litmus test question. How about your money? If, if you like, you invested the money that you invest in God, whatever that might look like for you, if you invested that in someone you loved, would they say, oh, thank you, I feel honoured and treasured by you? Or would they say, you're clearly communicating you don't care very much for me with what you've just handed over? It's pretty challenging stuff, isn't it, when we start to think of it in this bracket. The second example of the two he gives in sentence 12 to 14 is not so much our outward actions, but our inward hearts. 
that we give to God from a reluctant, weary and bored heart. Look at sentence 12 to 14. Let me read it. You can see it there. It says, but you profane it by saying the Lord's table is defiled and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord God Almighty. When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as a sacrifice, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Curse, now that's very strong language. Curse is the cheat or the thief who has an acceptable male in his flock, vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name should be feared, should be honoured among the nations. Do you see what they're doing here? It says they sniff. Do you see that word? What a burden, they sniff. Like that's, what does that mean? I looked it up. What does, what does it mean to sniff? What does that mean? Our cultural equivalent is a jaw-cracking yawn of boredom. That's our cultural equivalent. Now let's see how many others yawn. This better be contagious, isn't it? That's what it means to sniff, right? Culturally. So imagine this. God is a great, glorious, global king of the nations, it says in verse 14, doesn't it? And they're bored when they meet him. Imagine, right? You get home. And on the doormat, it's not an invitation to dinner of mine, you say. But is it a very finely embossed, beautiful, expensive cream envelope? Even has a wax seal. Hand delivered, because there's no stamp. You slice it open very carefully, because you take out that lovely, velvety paper of the highest caliber, written, handwritten, in slanting writing, is an invitation to tea with the Queen. But not just one of her huge garden parties, but a private audience, just a handful of them. Well, you write back and you say, I'll be there. And the day comes, you travel down to London, you get a quick virgin train, one hour, 20 minutes, isn't it? Very good value. And you get to Buckingham Palace, and in you're shown by a big beef-eater, furry, helmeted guy, and there's the Queen. She's walking across the room to greet you. You're standing there, still in your allotment clothes. Not just your allotment clothes, your gum boots, your wellies are slightly caked with manure because the delivery just came down and you've been wheelbarrowing it down to the back of the allotment all day. You're dirty and you're grimy. The Queen walks up to you and she's very well bred, the Queen, if you didn't know. So she makes no comment about what you're wearing. She rises above it. She reaches out her hand and says, I'm the Queen of England. And you go, And then it's worse, says here, you make a promise to give something, verse 14, you make a promise to give something and then change your mind, you never, never really meant to keep your promise. So you yawn in the face of the Queen, and then before she can get another word edgeways, you say to her, oh just give me a minute, I'm dying for a pee. But you're not, you just think it's a good way to get out and get back to the allotment and move around the horse poo so it's fertile. And so you leave. And leave the queen standing there thinking, I'm not quite sure what just happened. And that's actually what we're being told they're doing when it comes to God, who's so much more majestic and powerful than the Queen of England, he's going to be feared, honoured among all nations, is they sniff, they yawn in his face, they find it so dull to meet with the king of the universe. They dishonour God 
in the way that they honour him. Now may I finish with a final question. So I'm going to ask you to engage and come back in. I once had a friend, let me tell you why, I once had a friend who played in an orchestra, he was in the Hong Kong Philharmonic Orchestra, and they'd play as a trumpet player, and they'd play these enormously long, complicated pieces of music and leave us all in awe. And I'd say to him, how do you call all keep in rhythm and in time right the way through? And he said, if I'm honest, Alex, don't tell anyone, oops, if I'm honest, Alex, we don't. All that matters is we start at the same time and we finish at the same time and no one can tell the difference in between, right? So should we all try and finish at the same time and land in the same place? And I want to apply this. I want to try and take it home and make an impact to our lives that makes us better for living for Jesus. What then is true all life worship as a living sacrifice? What does it look like to give our lives in such a way that it is actually the kind of honour that God deserves, that shows him as a loving father, shows him as a good master, and shows him as a great king. Now, it's not being a professional Pete and saying everything has to be excellent. Being professional is good, but worshipping excellence is not. It's not about being an emotional Emma, who is all about stirring up a response here. God wants our affections, but not to manipulate them or create them. It's not about being a laid-back Larry, thinking somehow neglecting our responsibilities honours God and says his sovereignty is overarching. No, trusting him and his sovereignty is vital. Trusting uh, that he's called us to live our lives responsibly is equally vital. Actually, what I think it is, is not of anything about what we do. I think the biggest flaw, the biggest error out the back of this talk would be if you left going, I now need to do something. Because that would make this talk about religion. It would make it about starting with us and trying to honour God so he might love us, wouldn't it? I think the answer lies in going back to sentence two here in Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. I think a living sacrifice is a life that is so saturated in the love of God. What happens is we love God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our strength, and all of everything we are. That's what Jesus himself says in Mark 12. That we have such a clear sight and understanding of the love of God that the response to honour God simply flows out of that naturally and fully. And the love of God, the downward slide of God's love to us, is most fully seen in Jesus, isn't it? His all-appeasing, all-permanent, all-perfect sacrifice in our place. So what is the action, if there is an action, to seek to honour God most fully, to be a living sacrifice? Is not first going, how do I need to change my life? It's a good question. But it's first going, how do I see the love of God most fully. That's the error here. God loved them. They just were blind to it. So didn't honour him. They didn't see him as a loving father, did they? So they didn't respond as children who delighted to honour that father. Now those who teach preaching would say never do a cross-reference in the last two minutes of your sermon. But I know you're not an average congregation. Okay? I know it! So if you've got a Bible, can we do one cross-reference to finish? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 
chapter 4. It's on page 1161. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Because I think this is so important. Mentally, the dialogue in my head is, shall we go here, shall we not? Shall we go here? Run out of time? Keep going? What shall I do? You all turn to it, so that's a good sign. Page 1161. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If honouring God only comes as we see the love of God, and if the love of God is about seeing Jesus, what does that mean? Look at sentence 4. It says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, so we cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So we are, we are naturally blind. We cannot see Jesus. Do you see what that sentence says? If we want to see the love of God, we have to see Jesus. But we are blind and we cannot see who Jesus is. Now look at sentence six. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So verse four, we're blind. But by verse six, we see, don't we? We see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. The God who said that light shine out of darkness, created the whole universe, makes us able to see. Verse 4, we're blind to the love of God. Verse 6, we see the love of God. Now this is where it gets complicated. What happens between verse 4 and 6? Verse 5. Tricky being a preacher, isn't it? What happens in verse 5? For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. The preaching and proclamation of the word of God is the laser scalpel that God uses to burn the blindness off our eyes so we might see the love of God. Do you see the flow there? And so actually, if we want to honour God more fully, we need to see the love of God more completely, which means seeing Jesus, which means hearing his word, Proclaimed to cut away the blindness so we see him. I've asked Johnny for our final song this morning. I've asked Johnny to play something.